Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good winter weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Every Sunday on this show, you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and travel experts, sommeliers, and tastemakers, all of whom are passionate about everything delicious. It's my goal to feed your soul, so don't touch your dial, because I have an hour of scintillating and scrumptious conversation coming up. I am always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where you can find radio podcasts of shows you might have missed. They're also posted along with my homepage postings on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. You just want to search Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can find my daily dish, shameless as it is, what I ate, what you ate, what I'm cooking, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So every Sunday, I like to kick off this show with a lesson in food to make you the best cook you know. And I thought we would talk phyllo today, shall we? Phyllo isn't actually the most forgiving dough. It takes some patience and a a small amount of finesse. But those crunchy, lighter-than-air layers are so worth the effort, right? That cheesy, beautiful dish that everyone knows and loves, Spanakopita, just wouldn't be the same without phyllo. I happen to think that phyllo is a freezer aisle miracle. So this is the lowdown on what you need to know about phyllo. Phyllo actually translates to leaf in Greek, and it is a tissue paper thin-like sheet of dough made very simply from flour, water, and a bit of oil. However, phyllo dough was not born in Greece, rather in Istanbul. The name phyllo is Greek, but the dough technique itself is Turkish. Now, of all Turkey's uh, delicious sweet confections, the most famous is baklava, I happen to love the exquisitely flavored, nutty, honey-laden pastry that has been made for centuries, and I love food facts, too. The earliest known version of baklava was actually baked only on special occasions. In fact, historically, baklava was considered a food for the rich until the mid-19th century. But phyllo has come a long way. And here in America, we now use it for a multitude of sweet and savory dishes. Phyllo can enclose a huge variety of fillings, both savory and sweet. It can, of course, be assembled in a variety of shapes and sizes, like a cone or a crust or a purse or a triangle. You can twist it and fold it and roll it and press it into a pie. I use a muffin pan. Stay tuned. Great tip and recipe coming up. And you can use it as a substitute for pie and pastry dough if you want to go a little lighter. Now, you can also shred it using a sharp knife and use it to make uh, a nest, which you bake, which looks so truly fabulous. And it can be cut very easily to make bite-sized appetizer size, uh, you know, let's say starters. Oh, then of course you can leave it large and roll it to make a strudel. So the possibilities are endless. Now here is how to use phyllo. Maybe you need a refresher or you haven't attempted to use the flaky, delicious pastry before. 
you should really experiment. First, when it comes to phyllo, you must defrost properly. You can't really rush this part. You refrigerate the box of frozen phyllo for at least eight hours. I like to refrigerate for overnight and you allow it to thaw and then you'll need to leave it at room temperature for about a half an hour until all the sheets are pliable. If you jump the gun, it will lead to cracks, which of course just won't do, right? Then of course, when it comes to phyllo, one of my favorite parts is that you need plenty of fat. In order to get golden individual layers, you have to brush each layer of phyllo with butter or oil. Now, I like butter. That's not a shocker if you know me or if you've listened to this show for a long time. You'll need a pastry brush. And do remember that each sheet will soak up around a tablespoon of butter. So do plan accordingly. Now, it's the butter that leads to that perfectly golden color And of course, the fabulous flavor. So use good quality butter and it should be unsalted, of course. You'll want to keep the phyllo covered as well when you're working with it because working layer by layer does take time. And you'll keep the rest of the phyllo dough covered or wrapped so that it doesn't dry out in the process. Now, some chefs like plastic wrap. I happen to like a barely damp kitchen towel. I think it works best. You don't want to wet the towel and wring it dry. You just want to dampen it lightly under the kitchen sink, shake it out a bit, and then lay it over the layers of phyllo. And as you take a layer, cover the remaining layers with a towel, uh, that barely damp kitchen towel, of course, and it will stay pliable instead of getting brittle. Now, if you didn't know, one package of phyllo contains dozens of paper-thin sheets. So it's a very cost-effective way to uh, pull out all the stops, you could say. Most preparations or recipes that you'll find, though, use five or six of the sheets stacked together. And that's what gives you that really uh, decadent, you know, crumbly, layered pastry. Now, what do you use it for, you ask? Well, how about a quick weeknight chicken pot pie? You use leftover or let's say store-bought rotisserie chicken, some leftover cooked veggies, maybe some diced potatoes for the filling. And the phyllo crust is really simplicity itself. Just sheets of phyllo brushed with butter layered on top. And once you assemble it, You can bake it in less than 30 minutes, and it's really brilliant. Now, spanakopita, another great application for phyllo, that traditional uh, spinach pastry I mentioned earlier, very simple to master, very impressive to make as an appetizer. Baklava, a little bit more laborious, but still one of my favorites. How about making an apple strudel? Caramelized apples rolled in buttery phyllo, baked like a log, so good. And lastly, there is the phyllo cup. You could buy them, but why? It's one of the simplest preparations and it will make you a culinary hero. And you can fill a phyllo cup with just about anything. You can make them large or even small. You need a a mini muffin pan or a standard size muffin pan. And before the end of the hour, homemade phyllo cups are my last bite. So stay tuned. I will teach you how. 
I would also love to know what some of your favorite ways are to use phyllo. So please feel free to send your best recipes or your culinary queries via email direct. You can get to me at jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Okay, in food news this week, I love this story. By the French standard, a restaurant is awarded a Michelin star because they are top quality. They have amazing service. They serve out-of-this-world revolutionary food. But sometimes, and in fact, it just happened, you're awarded a Michelin star because the Michelin guide confused you with another restaurant. That is exactly what happened to Le Bouche à in Bourges, France. They were awarded a Michelin star earlier this month. However, the Michelin star was actually meant for a restaurant with the same name over a hundred miles away. Can you believe it? The difference uh, between the two restaurants uh, could not be greater. You see, the uh, restaurant that was mistakenly given a Michelin star is a lunch-only bistro that offers burgers and fries. And the Michelin starred location has lobster and foie gras. But despite all of the confusion, all is well that ends well, the restaurant that was uh, certainly deserving of the star has been granted it. The mix-up has been fixed, but the burger joint benefited from all of the media attention that it's getting. And um, so as a result, the owner has um, even been invited to eat at the actual Michelin-starred restaurant of the same name. And you've got to love a food story with a happy ending, right? (laughs) I do love it. Stay tuned. There's food news every week, and it will make for great dinner party conversation, don't you think? And please stay tuned because uh, we really do have an interesting, informative, and entertaining show coming up. Conversation from Chef Gil Meller, much acclaimed in Britain. He's visiting live from London in your radio. Also, we're dishing on the growing bourbon empire, and we're talking GMOs before the end of the hour. There's lots more fabulous food in your radio right after this. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen. Don't go away. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There is beautiful food and beautiful writing in the first breakout cookbook from River Cottage's chef, Gil Meller. Gather, what a wonderful title, showcases recipes inspired by the landscapes where chef lives and works. It's all about nature, from seashore to woodland, orchard to garden, field to farm. It's elevated, simple, honest food and a celebration of British seasonal cooking at its best. When it comes to rustic, real food, Gil Meller is hands down one of the most knowledgeable, inspiring, unassuming and respectful chefs out there. And he is here live to dish. And I am so glad to have you. Hi, chef. 
Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm well, and you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the on the show. Of course. Um, this Sunday, wh- where are you calling from? Tell us where you're situated. Well, I'm at home. I live on the on the southwest coast of England, uh, in the county of Devon. Um, I'm just a stone's throw from, from the sea, actually, which is mm. an absolute blessing. It's, it's, it's an incredible place, incredible place to live, really. Yes, no doubt. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm taking it easy today. I've done a bit of cooking, and we're going to have a, a, a late supper, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a good one. Oh, lovely. What have you made? Actually, today, we're, we're not going with a, with a typical Sunday roast. I've done a, a brown trout, celeriac, and, and mustard tart, oh. uh, so, so a, a flaky pastry, a local brown trout that a friend of mine caught, and... Uh, a kind of a mustardy custard mm. um, baked in the oven until just soft set and uh, served actually at room temperature. And it is, I've had a little sneaky try. It is absolutely <laughs> delicious. So that's what we're going to have tonight, Jamie. I wish I could come over or invite myself rather. Um, your food is undeniably exquisite, Gil. Uh, congrats on the book. If you would take us to River Cottage, please give us a, a uh, virtual tour. Uh, course I will and thank you so much for saying that it means a lot coming from you mm, um, thank you so River Cottage is just over the hill from from where I live it's a 65 acre farm it's a small holding and it's uh, somewhere I've worked for the last 12 years believe it or not mm. uh, really we're we're a cookery school so we teach a whole range of um, food-based courses on everything from from butchery to beekeeping to gardening, all the things that uh, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall seemed to inspire people with through his TV shows and his books. We have a course for it at, at River Cottage. And um, as cooking jobs go, it's, it's an incredible place to work. There's a, there's a wonderful walled garden in front of the, the old farmhouse, the 16th century farmhouse. Mm. Um, there's a, a fantastic relationship between the, the garden team and, and, and the chefs in the kitchen. And it's a real pleasure to cook there. Um, more recently, I've been working on, on a lot of my own projects, so I haven't had the the pleasure of being there every day, but um, when, I, when I am down there, when I'm teaching an enthusiastic bunch of, of students, it, 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 it takes a lot of beating, I must say. Hmm. I can only imagine what an experience there and a lesson in beekeeping would be like to take that honey um, and then transform it into dishes from your book. Uh, the food is so elevated but it has a rusticity to it your style your food philosophy how does how do you define that and how does it define you i think it's it, it's um it's something that's taken me time to put together really my, my style of food you mm. know it's something that i've i've learned over the years working with the people that i've worked with at river cottage one of the great things about being down there is that you're constantly exposed to all sorts of authorities on food, different chefs, different tutors, all with a different approach and different style to, to cooking and food and food production. So you you gauge food on all sorts of different levels, and it's helped me to define my own style, the style that I feel is unique to me. How would one describe it? You know, I, I, I cook very simply. I, I work closely with the seasons my food is very seasonal it's inspired by um what 
ingredients as it are in season at any one time. Um, and it definitely feels part of, of the landscape that I that I live in, and that's that's kind of what what gathers about. You know, I am um, lucky enough to be surrounded by a, a whole swathe of different food-producing landscapes, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I've grown up in them, and they definitely now influence the way I cook, and uh, the people that work in these landscapes and, and grow this amazing food, or harvest, or catch, or, or farm it are integral to, to the way uh, my, my finished dishes look, really. Of course. And um, mm. I suppose that, you know, the food that I make is, is showcasing what they do so well, which is is uh, pr- produce amazing ingredients. So I don't want to lose them in, in, in complex cookery, really. Right. And, and for sure, it's amazing to me how our culinary past paves the way for our culinary future. Like you mentioned, you grew up in it. Even for me, growing up in a household where my mom cooked uh, extraordinarily, I see some of those uh, lessons woven in to the way I cook today, no matter the ethnicity, the style, the elevation, the simplicity, whatever it is. Can you tell us about your mentor? Because I don't know that um, great cooks in the U.S. know enough about Hugh. Been a tremendous, tremendous influence on me and, and my cooking, and on I'm Britain. Honest with you, yes. And on Britain, yeah. Um, his his first major cookbook was published maybe eighteen years ago or something like that. Mm. It was called the River Cottage Cookbook, and it really mm. opened my eyes to a, to a different way of cooking. I'd only been cooking for a few years when I, when I read it, and uh, it wasn't just about cooking; it was about food production it was about the ethics behind um food production and it was something completely different to anything i'd read before and uh i was very lucky that 12 months after i picked up this book i met him hmm. at, a, at a party and i uh was offered a job working for him at a, at the uh the original river cottage cookery school how amazing um it, it was a it was fantastic i've learned a huge amount from him um he he's not only an, an, an incredible cook but you know he's a he's a you know he's a food journalist he's, yes. a, he's a campaigner and um very well respected he, he's very well respected in his no field doubt. absolutely yeah. he's taught me um a huge amount about mm. what cooking really means good shoes and, good shoes to follow in Absolutely, For and sure. he's been nothing. He, yeah, Jamie, he's been an absolute uh, legend, really. Yes. and he's been nothing but supportive um, in these in these last uh, few months as, as my own books come out. Um, in fact, he, you know, he he was thrilled to bits with it, and, <laughs> uh, and we, we, we've talked about it regularly. The book is so original, Gil, and that is hard to say today, and it is absolutely stunning. And I congratulate Thank you. you. So much. I can't wait oh, to wow, cook that's from it. Really kind. It's, Thank it's you a, very a much beautiful indeed. release with really extraordinary food at its heart. The new cookbook release from Chef Gil Meller, his first, uh, of course, after 12 years of tenure at River Cottage, the much famed. The book is called Gather, and it is a true celebration of seasonal cooking at its best with a beautiful philosophy 
and a mindful way to cook and eat. And for presentation alone, it will have you drooling on the pages. Gather is available now, uh, of course, on Amazon and bookstores uh, across the country and around the world. And you can learn more at Gil Meller, double L in both places, gilmeller.com. Chef, I look forward to seeing you soon. Um, thank you for sharing your passion so much. Thank you very much, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, we do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. Stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. This is a place for people who love to eat and drink. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're distilling the history of American whiskey into a single glass today. Walk into a well-stocked liquor store and you'll see countless whiskey brands, each boasting an inspiring story of independence and heritage. Yet more than 95% of the nation's whiskey comes from a small handful of what are giant companies with a colorful history that is often far different than what appears on the label. Reed Mittenbuehler is a bourbon fan and the author of Bourbon Empire, a lively, rowdy, very brilliantly written narrative of swindlers and smugglers and connoisseurs and craftsmen. And he's helping you choose and sip the best bourbons for your palate. I thank you for being here, Reed. Congratulations. The book's getting a lot of acclaim. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Yes, of course. Okay. What is the real story of American whiskey in a nutshell? Because your book definitely digs deep. American whiskey and bourbon, it's one of these products that you can kind of use as a mirror. Um, you know, you hold it up and it reflects the nation. You know, it was mm. brought to you by immigrants and industrialists and farmers and, you know, these kinds of people on the stage is, you know, fields, but it's also in factories and boardrooms. And it's a product that had a great influence on the history of the nation. You've got the Whiskey Rebellion, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, taxation. It was a big driver of revenue for taxes. Um, you know, lots of political scandals were around mm -hmm. the whiskey industry and during the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. Um, so it's really driven the history of the country in a lot of ways. And then on the flip side of that, the way the country has changed, moving from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy, has changed how the product's made. So it's reflected from that angle as well. And, you know, if you, you take this thing, you can, you can really learn a lot about the country, see a lot about the country just by looking at that. Yeah, no doubt. I was um, amazed to see and very fascinated to see the highlight that you paralleled of the whiskey industry and the U.S. economy. A tremendous similarity. You know, you see this debate that is always in our political discourse about big versus small, you know, big business versus small business. And it goes back to Alexander Hamilton, who is more of a champion of big business, and Thomas Jefferson, who is more a champion of these small human farmers. You know, you hear that reflected a lot in today's debate about food and food culture and food politics. And 
you've got this industry that started basically as just a sideline to farming. Thousands of farmers all across the countryside were making whiskey just as a way to preserve the value of their surplus grains. They would have rotted on the ground otherwise. Hmm. And they're using it as currency and then, you know, for trade. So it's a big part of the culture because they're also drinking it. And it's a lot of smallness. And then you see as the industry progresses, it starts to consolidate, like a lot of, a lot of industries becomes a bigger business, becomes a lot more industrial, develops a lobbying arm that has a big influence on the government. And you see these debates, you know, kind of raging. And then you get to the point that you mentioned in the uh, opening of the show. You know, by the year 2000, you have just a handful of companies making almost all of it, which you see reflected in a lot of industries. And for a lot of people, that's kind of a, uh, a cynical take. And they look at it like, oh, okay, it's just like you know, everything else. But for me, in the book, this is kind of where the story really took off because there was a little, little bit of a counterintuitive twist here where a lot of these big companies making bourbon today actually do a really good job of the industrial nature of this, this stuff as a product because it's highly processed, um, it's made in you know, stills, is that it, um, you know, it benefits a lot of times from big economies of scale and big companies. So, you know, a lot of these small producers making it do a very good job, and I, I champion them, and I, I support them. But, you know, big isn't necessarily inherently bad in this situation. Like, we sometimes think about it for, for other things. I thought that was a really fun angle to explore in the book. Definitely so. And I appreciate that you champion it through sipping, right? <laughs> right. Yes, through sipping. <laughs> um, but I thought what was most interesting is that as these um, producers – have gotten uh, bigger and bigger and have come to be giant companies um, that, you know, um, tend to, as you say, retain the majority of the business, there is still the story on the bottle or the history that is shared about that company. Believing or trusting those stories on a whiskey bottle, that is the question, to believe or not to believe. Pretty good practice to not believe all of it. Not right? believe. Okay. Um, there's a small kernel of truth in a lot of the stories, but you, know, you see how this frontier iconography and you know, that really strikes a chord with consumers. I mean, you see that, and it's you know nostalgia comes into play. It's part of the past. You look at the values that the frontier represents. You know, pragmatism. You know, working hard, independence, that kind of thing. And you know, when you see that on a bottle, you know, you kind of you want to associate yourself itself with that. And I look at a lot of our drinking choices, and it's a lot like our fashion choices, right? I mean, we kind of hold these things as an accessory. And if you have a glass of whiskey in your hand, hmm. you know, it's got a lot of character. You think back to the frontier, you think of those things. You know, what's on the surface isn't always what's kind of behind the story. But what's behind it is, is a lot of times more interesting, and it's more nuanced. And when you get into that nuance, which I, which I love, this real story emerges, and no matter what the marketers you know, do to try to embellish the story, that real story you know, just can't be topped. So it does so. remain, I think this applies to so many facets, or maybe all of them, in the food and, and drink industry. When it comes down to it, I believe you let your palate do the talking. We're toasting with bourbon more after the break. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
Chef Jamie Gwen here. Reed Mittenbuehler is the author of Bourbon Empire, and we are just about to sit down and pour a drink. The best way to choose a bourbon or um, an olive oil, for that matter, (laughs) is to taste it. Absolutely. And that's one thing. And I I teach the occasional class. Um, I do tastings with folks, that kind of thing. And I've done a lot that are blind. And I've, I've gotten to judge some spirits competitions. And that's one of the most fun parts is that, you know, when you put the blindfold on and you're not looking at the label, and especially when you're not looking at the price tag, right. um, you're always surprised when you, when you do look at what you've got. I've seen some really expensive whiskeys that really aren't that good. And then there's some really well-priced or even, you know, rather inexpensive whiskeys that are just just superlative and mm. you know people in this industry they all kind of say the same thing and these people who geek out about it you know, such as myself yes that's kind of one of the things i like about it is that some of this you know this is a humble product and when it started it was very blue collar it was just you know, as i said something that was just a sideline to farming it's always kind of had this very practical kind of reputation and in the last 30 40 years you've seen a lot of up marketing take place you know like a lot of things it's been fancified, I guess, to use that word. Um, but if you remember, you know, the true nature of this stuff, it's really just primarily corn, a very common grain, and right. the process to make it is pretty simple. Patience, aging it uh, a fair amount of time is one of the most important factors. There's really not that much to it. It's, it's, and that's kind of what I like about it. I like the fact that it's really at its core a simple kind of utilitarian thing. A very humble drink to many. It is. There is a, a renaissance occurring for American whiskey right now, especially bourbon. What do you believe led to the revival? You know, it's a great story because before we get to the revival, you have to look at the downfall. Yes. And in the 1960s, starting in the 1960s, people started to reject the drink. As baby boomers began drinking, they really didn't want you know their dad's drink or their grandfather's drink. And before then, whiskey had always been a hugely popular spirit and, and liquor stores, one of the most, um, you know, it was one of the most drinking things that, that we had. But, you know, it's like fads in fashion, you know, hemlines go up, they go down, lapels come in, they go out. Right. I always say, stuff. Reed, save your jeans because they'll come back around. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exact same thing. And you had these people and they started rejecting, you know, this drink that was associated with the past. Um, they turned to things like vodka and, and other drinks. And the industry just cratered. Sales went down, prices plummeted, a lot of the a lot of these distilleries went out of business. Mm. And then you wait twenty, twenty five years, starting in the early two thousands, it starts to have an uptick and people start coming back to it. And it's kinda of one of those what's old you know, is new again new kind again. of stories sure. or what goes around comes around. Thank you for um, shining light on what is a fascinating history. Reed Mittenbuehler traces the big names, the Jim Beams and the Maker's Mark and the Evan Williams and more back to their origins. He explores the founding myths and great successes of a bourbon empire illusion separated from reality it is a terrific read for whiskey lovers so please check it out the book is entitled bourbon empire and it is available on amazon and beyond and you can learn more at reed mittenbuehler r-e-i-d-m-i-t-e-n-b-u-l-e-r.com thank you for sharing your passion reed oh well thank you for having me that was a pleasure as the delicious conversation continues we will sip and savor more right after this 
Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It's time to get the truth. In the past two decades, GMOs have come to dominate the American diet. Advocates hail them as the future of food. Meanwhile, the critics call for their banishment. Prominent environmental writer McKay Jenkins, the author of seven books, traveled across the U.S. from the Monsanto headquarters in St. Louis to the papaya fields of Hawaii to dig deeper. And he reports his findings in a new book release that is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's entitled Food Fight, GMOs and the Future of the American Diet. And it is a fascinating read. Thank you for being here, McKay. I'm really glad to have you. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Okay. The message that I heard through your prose is that we really don't know how much we really don't know about GMOs. I think that's a great way to, to start. I mean, I think a lot of people have very strong opinions about GMOs, but they actually don't really know much about GMOs, which makes it complicated to talk about. The thing about GMOs is they are absolutely everywhere in the American diet, but they are at the same time completely invisible. So, you know, people think, well, GMOs, I think, I think that means that those are genetically altered plants, so we must be talking about stuff that's in the produce aisle, which turns out to be not true. It, it turns out that there are basically no GMOs in the produce aisle. The place you find GMOs is in the middle of the supermarket, in all the processed foods, in all fast foods, in all junk foods, in all soda pop, all the stuff that we already know is essentially not good for us. That's where you find GMOs. So... Uh, weirdly, GMOs don't show up where you'd expect them, and they do show up where you would never know because you can't find any evidence of them. Okay, so what that brings me to think, first and foremost, as a professional chef, and we talk about this a lot on this program, I love fresh, wholesome food. I love to cook. I live to eat. But I like to cook at home because I know what goes into it. And I think that there is a tremendous challenge in the fact that the information that we're given or delivered is inaccurate in many ways. So you might have a necessity for fast food, convenience foods, and otherwise. And then you're fed information that the new burrito at the place you drive through is made with, you know, um, 100% white meat chicken and all natural. But I'm not sure that's the truth. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, one of the really frustrating things about all of these conversations is that there is there's information, there's disinformation, hmm. there's marketing, there's real science, there's fake science, there's politics, there's, you know, companies trying to do one thing or another with, with science or with their marketing plans, and on all sides, right? So if you have a burrito joint that says, as like, for example, um, Chipotle did a few months ago, we're not going to use GMOs, they said. And everyone's like, oh, great, that sounds excellent. But I'm not sure what they meant because, like, if they were implying that they don't use GMO for their black beans, there are no GMO black beans. So that that is a nonsensical statement. On the other hand, they still served, as you said, chicken that was inevitably fed GMO soybeans, so there's GMO in the chicken. Hmm. They inevitably serve soda, which is sweetened with GMO high fructose corn syrup. So... That marketing campaign, which was intended to take advantage of GMO anxiety, turned out to be like misinformation at about every different level. So that's a problem. You have other problems where you have companies like the global food conglomerate saying we need to have GMOs to feed the world, which is a tagline you hear all the time. But if what they mean by that is we want to feed the world more cheap chicken nuggets and more cheap hamburgers 
and more cheap processed food, I'm not sure the world wants that. I mean, certainly Europe doesn't want it. Europe has basically been uniformly against GMOs, partially because Europe has deep food culture that we simply can't seem to kind of get. We, we eat in this way where we emphasize cheapness and quickness and high-calorie, low-nutrition, which is like in almost every way the opposite of the way we should be eating. Right. So GMOs are, are not the cause of all this, but they are integral to the whole system that we're talking about. He is McKay Jenkins, and the book is called Food Fight, GMOs, and the Future of the American Diet. And from fields to grocery store shelves to your dinner table, it is not simply about feeding the world, as McKay says. It's about feeding the world well. A great read. Please grab it and follow McKay uh, in social media. He's McKay, M-C-K-A-Y, Jenkins, and McKay Jenkins Books. I look forward to speaking with you again, McKay, and thank you for trying to make the world a better place, no doubt. Oh, thanks, and I, I say the same to you. I really appreciate it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic dedication and inspiration. I hope that you'll open your mind, expand your palate, and tune in every Sunday to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. I will leave you with, as promised, my last bite for the hour on the topic of phyllo. If you tuned in to the start of this show, you heard me speak about the wonder of the freezer aisle, and these are actually one of my favorite party tricks. Homemade phyllo cups are so simple to make, and they're a beautiful vessel for both savory and sweet fillings. On the savory side, you can fill them with tuna or egg salad. You get a really fancy presentation. For a sweet dessert, put a scoop of ice cream inside each cup, drizzle with sea salt caramel or Sambuca chocolate sauce. Now I'm making myself hungry. Or fill them with raspberries and cream or chocolate mousse. They're just so good. You'll preheat your oven to 425 degrees, arrange a sheet of phyllo on a large cutting board, brush it with melted butter, repeat until there are six layers, then you'll cut four by four inch squares and fit each square of layers into a muffin pan. You'll want to press the phyllo into the cups of the muffin pan and bake for about 10 minutes until they're light brown and crispy. Store them at room temperature and you have made a homemade phyllo cup. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope to meet you here next Sunday for more delicious conversation in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,